صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, Rob. How are you doing? Mate, I'm exceptionally well. How are you? Yeah, really well, mate. Really well. It's all right. I'm excited about our guest today. It's a great guest. One of your friends from your time and travels in Palestine, David Sheen, who's an investigative journalist and filmmaker, is joining us from Haifa. Good morning, mate. Hey, how you doing? It's just afternoon here, but uh, getting into a smooth afternoon. It's kind of hazy outside, but nice and bright still. I'm looking out at the Mediterranean from my uh, perch here in Haifa. Well, it's freezing here, so you... <laughs> it's going to be one degrees tonight. Thanks very much. Oh, goodness. <laughs> my, uh, my sympathies. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey? Okay, sure. Uh, I don't like to talk too much about myself because as far as I'm concerned, it's the stories I'm reporting on that are the stories, not, not the storyteller. But just as for some people, it, it helps to understand the context I'm coming from. So I've been working as journalist here in 48 territories in Israel for the last uh, decade plus. I've been living here since 1999 and I uh, was born in Canada. That's where I spent the first 25 years. That's, that's what accounts for the English or most of the accent. And... <laughs> exactly. Like I said, I, I've been working as a journalist for the last uh, 12 years or so, but even beforehand, I had come to the country many times and I had been living here for some time. I, w- I was a citizen from birth. Uh, my father was born here and his parents were born here. So though I grew up in Canada, I came a lot as a child, uh, as a teenager, visiting family, friends, and traveling around the country in the context of uh, Zionist trips to Israel. I come from a Jewish family. You know, I don't worship Yahweh, but that's, you know, but I'm Jewish. So in any case, having that experience of the country for the first 25 years of basically experiencing the country through other people's experiences. When I, when I, I moved here, I moved to Tel Aviv in 1999, I began for the first time experiencing the country directly myself, just as I went about the course of the day, finding a place to live finding a place to work, going to work back and forth and just encountering folks, I began to have experiences that made me question and quickly change my political understandings of the place. As I came to realize that much of what I'd been told was not true, you know, was distorting the truth. So, you know, of course it still took some years. I still had a lot to learn to catch up on, but that was my first break really within like a month of moving to the country. I started out PEP, PEP standing for progressive except for Palestine. So it's not that I was on the right side of the political map on every other way. I was on the left side of the political map in every other way, except for my politics on this place. So that was based on wrong information. Once I had right information or direct my my own perceptions, from my perspective, it's right. But you know, my, once I perceived it myself, that's when I started shifting my, you know, my, my position on what I would like to see happen here. And Was there an epiphanous moment? Was there a trigger, one thing that set you off? 
think that um, one of the things that I that I go back to is meeting some folks who were building the, the, the apartment building I was living in. They were doing construction, they were doing renovations. And, you know, I had come from Canada and I was pretty polite. So I would just say hello as I entered and exited the building to the men who were working on the building. Good morning. How's it going? What's up? You know, after a few, several days of this, then, you know, that's up. How's it going? Went came to, oh, we're having a cigarette. You want to sit down and have a cigarette? So you share a cigarette. And then maybe after a few days, they're like, oh, sit down. We're having coffee. You want to join us for coffee? After a few days, it was just like, oh, oh, here, we're just having some hummus. Do you want some? You know, so I began to have just a, you know, casual acquaintanceship with these men working on my house. And then casually over the course of our conversations, I, I understood that they were from Nablus and that it took them hours to get to work every morning. Like they would have to wake up at four in the morning or something ridiculous like that and leave their villages to get to work so that when I leave for work in the morning, they're already at work. And I realized these men don't (laughs) present any security threat, right? So what's the reason from them having to be so inconvenienced every single day? And it wasn't like it was like an especially tense time with lots of attacks that only, you know what I mean? The security measures ratcheted up and that was just the norm. And I realized, okay, well, to me, it's obvious it's to keep a captive labor force that you can, you know, exploit at your will. So once I realized that, you know, one aspect of the occupation is economic, that it was an economic injustice to people. I was just like, what, you know, it came up against my socialist values. Once I realized that the security reason didn't account that was just the excuse that was given well then the moral argument went over and so that was i guess the epiphany so-called of course there are other experiences but that's the one that sticks out in my mind yeah but just really a personal experience a human experience i mean i met arab people muslim people growing up in toronto but never really knew any palestinians well so just you know it's a multicultural city, but it just didn't happen. So then I guess coming here and actually meeting Palestinians and getting to know some, even that was enough to make me realize that uh, my education or brainwashing had uh, brought me to, to somewhere that I, I wasn't going to stay. Yeah. So that's the story in a bit. Yeah, no, it's uh, interesting you say that, David, because Peter Beinhardt, as you know, one of Zionist royalty out of New York, he wrote an article recently talking about his transformation from, you know, very Zionist household, et cetera, et cetera. All the Arabs want to kill us, drive us into the sea to where he is today as a one-stater. And he was saying the, the point that was most transformative for him was actually speaking to a Palestinian and breaking down all the stereotypes that had been fed to him for his entire life. I'm interested, David, you're talking about that captive labor market. I mean, the reality, the, the disparity between the GDP per person between a Palestinian, let's say 67 East Jerusalem Gazan and a 48 Jewish person is, is mm-hmm. a factor of 10, sort of 50K versus 5K. We spoke about that, you know, keeping a captive labor force. And a couple of months ago, when we had the latest massacre in Gaza, when the Palestinians had a general strike all over historic Palestine, it was a significant pain on the uh, Israeli economy. I don't spend much of my time actually in the West Bank. Uh, I leave that to other journalists who are based in the West Bank and who speak Arabic, so they're better qualified to report on the stories of Palestinians living there. But, you know, from my perch here, observing Jewish-Israeli society, let's, you know, in the last few months, you know, we, you, you've heard that we had national elections here 
And finally, after much struggle, Benjamin Netanyahu was ousted as the you know, longest serving prime minister in Israeli history. So the party that he leads, the Likud party, that ruled Israel for you know, much of the last uh, several decades, you know, of course, Netanyahu is still the leader of that party, but you know, there's murmurings. There's the idea that if he brought them to defeat, that they need a new leader after all these years. And the prime candidate who is being propped up by uh, right-wing groups to replace Netanyahu as the leader of the Likud party is Nir Barkat, who is the previous mayor of Jerusalem. It's interesting was just to, to get a sense of so to get a sense of where Israel is on this. So here's the the candidate basically to be the potentially the next uh, leader of the opposition and leader of the country. He released a video a couple months ago where he was you know as uh, a minister in charge of the economy or uh, he, he has to present what his economic plan is and in explaining his plan he's saying that we need to you know drive investment in the West Bank. And one of the ways he pitched this was, he said, and it's a cheap labor force. Like he explicitly straight up. And I mean, we were just, when stuff like this happens, we're just tripping like, oh my gosh, you, you admit it, you admit it. You know, but of course, in the context of which he says it, no one bat, you know, blinks even because it's normalized. Um, but so in any case, yes, that, that is, that's a normalized part of the discourse that it's a cheap, that Palestinian people are a cheap labor force. And so that's, you know, in my opinion, one of the strong reasons why the occupation lasts decades and decades is because it's convenient economically for Israeli citizens. You said that Benjamin Netanyahu's reign as the longest serving prime minister has ended. I know around, well, I, saw, I certainly saw Biden welcome President Rivlin into the White House and they were laughing and giggling about the death of Netanyahu in Australia. They're talking about what new opportunities exist with Naftali Bennett. Now we know better. Naftali Bennett is to the right of Benjamin Netanyahu. I've killed a lot of Arabs and I don't have a problem with that, Naftali Bennett. He's no leftist. Let's, let's, let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, so, so, what, so, so this is the discourse in Australia? Is this the discourse that he's some kind of... The reality is that as a white settler colonialist country where... You know, I've got so much in common with the state of Israel. And in mm. fact, it's seen as a reset, you know, that the obstacle to peace has been Netanyahu all along. And now that we've got this sort of obstinate guy out, we've got a new blood in, there's going to be new opportunities. Oh, my goodness. It's so disheartening to hear that that's the narrative that, you know, rational people are embracing because it couldn't be farther from the truth. As you pointed out, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, rather, Naftali Bennett is to the right. He even said so in his opening address to the Knesset that my government will be five degrees to the right of Netanyahu or 10 degrees. I don't remember what degrees he oh. said. It's all, he's already, you know, trying to dial it to the right. And that doesn't even account for the fact that even outside the governing coalition, he has an, you know, the, the most right wing Knesset legislature in Israeli history. You've got once again, full-on terrorists, the Kahanist movement in the Knesset as representatives with parliamentary immunity. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. The only reason that they finally ousted Netanyahu is not any rejection whatsoever of his you know, right-wing anti-Palestinian politics. It's only because he's up on corruption charges. He's on trial for major corruption crimes. And the evidence for that has been put out in the Israeli media. It, it's pretty... Damning evidence. It's a bad look. Yeah. 
And I mean, it's because of that, he, now all the people, his like closest circle, several ministers around him are also being charged with corruption crimes. You know what I mean? So it's, the, the corruption is so sickening and so ingrained that, you know, he's actually attracted other corruption around him. Mm. Secondary, tertiary corruption. At this point, it, the, the government stopped functioning. So really, that's really the reason. It's, it's saving the Zionist project from the Netanyahu forever project. That's the only reason that we saw a change in government. Yeah. Tell us about um, Natalie Bellard. I know that I watched some of your videos from many years ago, and I just couldn't, I couldn't believe what you were saying that they were saying, you know, uh, statements. What, mm. what else has he said? Because he is a vile human being, isn't he? Tell mm-hmm. us about him just briefly. Look, I don't think he's the worst, but he's certainly the head of the eliminationist camp in Israel. And what that means is that he's the head of the camp that wants to ethnically cleanse the country of non-Jews, the religious parties in the country. That's their end game. And of course, loosely saying that, of course, there are, you know, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox people who don't want that. But I'm talking now of the bulk of that, and it's borne out in statistics after statistics after statistics, that the second largest camp in the country, after the apartheid camp, after the dominationist camp, Uh, The second biggest camp, political camp in the state of Israel is the eliminationist camp. And that camp is headed by Naftali Bennett. And that's why he's prime minister, because they needed one member of that eliminationist camp to to be considered legitimate in the eyes of the people. Their camp is the second biggest. So you actually you have to have one, at least one faction of that camp in the government for it to be seen by the people, the Israeli electorate, as legitimate. So. The other eliminationist parties are in the opposition now with Netanyahu. But Naftali Bennett was needed, and that's why, even though he only has six seats, 5% of the parliament, that's, that's nothing, you know? But he, that's why his, he was made prime minister, because the votes of the eliminationist camp were crucial. Of course, they, they tried to, ha- have his, to rely as little as possible on the Palestinian parties, but, you know, they need the eliminationist parties. So... He, on his own, we can come, we can look, during the last war, let's say the, the last bombardment of Gaza in 2014, I'm talking now. Uh, at that time, Naftali Bennett went on television and said in English, described what was going on as Hamas committing self-genocide. Okay, so it means that what's happening in Gaza is a genocide, but the people who are at fault, who are to blame for it, are Hamas. But there's no, there's no dispute that what's happening is a genocide. So that gives you, you know, a sense of who he is. He does try to, you know, give lip service to democracy, but I can also give you a million, you know, a long list of quotes that show the exact opposite. Um, but he grew up you know, some years in the U.S. on the West Coast. So he, like Netanyahu, speaks English. When the two of them, you know, would meet to discuss arrangements, they speak in English to each other as they both grew up in the United States, spent those pivotal teen years in the U.S. So, but again, like Netanyahu, he's slick in front of the camera. He can speak English well and tell, you know, we have a tale. But ultimately, he's ahead yeah, it, it, you know, that's what makes him dangerous. Yeah, I've never heard those terms before, David. Thank you for, for giving us a domination party and an elimination. So, yeah, Lapid, you know, who's the alternative prime minister, he's from the domination party. That's right. He's in the domination camp. 
Right. His camp, we talk about the, the Knesset's got 120 seats. They're at 61 or 60? Right. They have to have at least 61. And they've actually got the Islamist Palestinian party. I don't know how they're going to get reelected. But anyway, so most recently, Neftali Bennett had a shock loss. His first piece of legislation was to renew the family reunification law, which denies Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel from the opportunity to marry spouses that aren't 48ers and give them uh, citizenship. And that's been rolling along. So out of the 120 seats, they had 59-59. So Netanyahu lobbied against it um, to prove that this is not really a um, right-wing party. Yeah, I mean, it's a very cynical move. Of course, he wants this You know, he pushed it all those years while he was prime minister for this law to be renewed every year because he wants as few Palestinians in the country. He's long said so, you know, over decades. So there's no shock that he opposes or that he supports the law in principle. It's just that he's the leader of the opposition now. He thinks he can still get back into the prime minister's seat. He doesn't think he's ousted. He, you know, he's he hasn't gone nowhere. Right. He's still fighting every day in the Knesset to topple the government. And there's a not small likelihood that that could happen. There's lots of reasons why, as you know, with a coalition that's so uh, so fragile and so brittle, uh, that it's very possible that for a whole host of reasons, it could break up any time. And then, yeah, Netanyahu would be perfectly positioned to resume, <laughs> to return to the prime minister's office. So it's a cynical move on his part, but you know, he's not exactly known for his moral upstanding or anything. David, what do you think the chances of that happening are? I, I, I try not to make uh, predictions when I don't have a sense of it because, I mean, all this stuff is going on behind the scenes. But there's no way that this is gonna, government is going to last four years. And I highly doubt that it will last two years, which is when Yair Lapid thinks that he's going to take over from Bennett as prime minister. There's a million reasons. Now, now, now keep in mind that the idea now of this government is to return bipartisanship or bipartisan support for Israel in the American Congress. It's a, this is why we have you know, the same group of advisors advising both US President Biden and uh, you know, or, or the, the, the ones who are in the democratic majority for Israel, the, you know, a lobby group lobbying Biden from inside so-called the Democratic Party to, you know, to su- support Israeli intransigence. And so then you have on this, this side of the pond, the same democratic majority for Israel so-called lobby group advising Yair Lapid about, you know, political, you know, situation here in Israel. So the same group of advisors, this is what they want to see. They want to see that in you know, what Israel lost in recent years, the idea that, you know, it, the entire American political spectrum pretty much uh, gave wholesale support for every move it made, you know, it lost that in recent years with Netanyahu dry humping Trump's leg and, you know, basically completely, you know, becoming like open, outspoken uh, advocate of like, the Pax far right that uh, you know includes Trump and Netanyahu and various European countries and and the idea here is you know there's no need to be um, diplomatic anymore we can just like openly you know just say we're, we're right wing and you left wingers are traitors and it's on both sides of the Atlantic and you know this is who we are and this is the right way and we're gonna have a right wing majority forever so obviously that causes some consternation back in the US for Israel's 
supporters who use the Democratic Party as their vehicle to uh, push Zionist, pro-Zionist policies. So they need someone like Yair Lapid. They need someone like Biden in the White House and Lapid here on this side of the pond to put a so-called kinder face on Israel. And that's, that's what we're, we're going to see. We're not going to see, you know, what we had during the Trump era, where he was actually putting Kahanist supporters in charge of U.S. public policy on Israel, where the Kahanists actually, you know, ran U.S. public policy. So, you know, he, he's not going to do that. And on this side, they're going to have, you know, your Lapid repeat platitudes and make people, you know, with his gelled hair and his, you know, perfect teeth, he's going to say, you know, don't worry, we're back. Just like, you know, Biden says, okay, Trump's gone, we're back. So it's the same thing here. Lapid's going to say, Netanyahu's gone, we're back. So you can, you know, keep the money and political support, you know, rolling in and it's all to the good. You can go back to, you know, go back to sleep and not be concerned about what's happening here. Just go back. Nothing to see. Default. Yeah, nothing to see here. Exactly. No war crimes to see here. It looks like that's going to have the next little while. So what are you thinking? The reality of this family reunification law is that, you know, it's an extension of the nation state law in expressing explicitly the apartheid nature of the country. Yala Peds tweeted, there's no need for us to hide from the purpose of this law. It's one of the tools meant to secure a Jewish majority in Israel. Israel is a nation state of Jewish people. And our goal is that it will always have a Jewish majority. Aside from Human Rights Watch, their report earlier this year, Beth Salem's report on top of all of the reports from all the Palestinians along the journey, even two former Israeli ambassadors to South Africa have come out and said it's apartheid. We, we have to get, be getting closer to that point where Israel's so on the nose that people start holding it to account, surely. I can't speak for uh, <laughs> how many people are going to hold their nose and for how long and how, you know, when we can expect that. To me, it's, uh, I, look, you talked about Yair Lapid openly expressing support for the uh, law and explaining the racist nature of it. Like the explicit reason was to maintain a Jewish majority. Well, this is why I describe them as dominationists because their vision is to have one state in which one ethnic group dominates the other. Uh, that is the largest political bloc in Israel, that's like 60 to 65% of the votes. Then you add the eliminationists, that's another 20 or so percent. You're looking at 85% of the electorate want either domination or elimination. So one state, either one dominated by apartheid or ethnic, those, you know, the, the non-Jews ethnically cleansed. So of course, if everyone living in the land from the river to the sea were counted and enfranchised and had a vote, that's, you know, about 50% of the population would be Jewish, 50% Palestinians. So they could, even if, you know, we had the same voting patterns, and I doubt we would, but even if we did, uh, that, you know, domination and eliminationists would not have such a huge chunk, but because Palestinian voices, you know, are, are disenfranchised, they don't vote for the Knesset, so we don't have that. Um, I don't, I don't think that here, that on the Jewish side, there are, you know, I, I described it maybe what, 15, you know, like 15% of the electorate, but a lot that votes not for one of those domination or eliminations parties, but many of those votes are from Palestinian citizens of Israel. 
of the Jewish of citizens course. of Israel, the amount that supports a two-state solution or a one equal state, one democratic state, we're talking about a, a very small percentage of the population. So within the society, Israel obviously militarily can't be bested. It's got such a super strong army, one of the strongest in the world, one of the most powerful you know, arms, uh, you know, weapons manufacturing countries in the world. So there's no chance of Israel being defeated militarily. And there's no chance seemingly from within Israeli society for a group of you know, liberals or socialists to, you know, working with Palestinian citizens of Israel to kind of roll back the apartheid and bring about a, a one state reality in which everyone is equal or a two state situation where there's two separate states. The, you know, meaning like a realistic one, not Bantu stands, of course. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, that it's not going to come from besting Israel militarily. It's not going to come from within the Israeli society. So it has to, at least in part, come from pressure from outside. Um, now, how does outside, does world opinion come to change one way or another? Is it from, you know, reports put out by Israeli groups and reports put out by Palestinian groups? It's, I do think that, uh, okay, great. You know, they've said the word apartheid and, you know, I'm not a political advisor. You know, maybe that's, what, you know, getting people to accept a word, a specific word, a concept, a phrase. Maybe that is what's necessary, but my personal uh, piece in this is that instead of trying to get people like to uh, come to a consensus around a particular, you know, you know, framework, you know, yeah, this is decolonization and we, okay, great, we have that framework, but, you know, and some people spend their time trying to convince people to understand and adopt that framework. But my rule, as I see it, is showing more about what's actually happening on the ground because my belief is that the more just like you know i had a different belief about this place when i didn't have the facts you know but other people too would be like this and that if they only knew more facts and they would also come around to a different way of seeing things and for working here as a journalist from all these years i know that there are so many stories that despite the fact that there are zillions of you know, journalists working here, um, foreign, local, but still, um, you know, those are really hamstrung. Most of the local journalists here are working for the dominationist or eliminationist media. Uh, and the ones who are foreign journalists, obviously they're hamstrung because they need their credentials authorized by the Israeli government just to be here in the country. So, you know, they, they have to be conscious of reporting a certain political line as well. What it means is that so many stories just simply don't get told. There's no practical way. There's no one that's going to publish it. There's no one going to pay for it. There's no one's going to research it. My piece has been working on stories that no one, that everyone else missed, either because they're too close or they're too far or they're, you know, just their political opinions prevent them from realizing it's important. And so that's what I've been kind of doing here, hacking away and in my own little, you know, niche, exposing some pretty scandalous stories that uh, the mainstream media completely, you know, blipped on, whether it's, you know. How can our listeners um, get all of these stories? What's your website that they can gain access to all of this? Sure. Well, my website is just my name, davidsheen.com. So that's D-A-V-I-D-S-H-E-E-N. 
www.thinkandgrowthcoach.com. Uh, there you'll see yeah, a list to, you know, let's say my last hundred articles, links to all the articles. You can read them. There's links to dozens and dozens of lectures on university campuses around the world. And some of these are filmed. I often, you know, bring graphic elements into them. You know, there's slideshows. These slideshows based on my reporting are helpful kind of multimedia vehicles for kind of understanding what's going on here. So there's lots of different formats. If it's writing or video or slideshows, uh, I encourage people. And of course, I use social media to, if you're a so, social media user, you're welcome to check me out, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or whatnot. And it's all uh, linked to from the davidsheen.com. Yeah, and people should share your work. Because I mean, that's what needs to happen. It's like you're saying, people need to see what's happening on the ground. And if people can't go there, at least they can read from, you know, stories from those that have been there. It's easier to empathize, you know, with these people. David, we've got about a minute to go. So it's davidsheen.com. We'll put that link in the podcast. What do you think needs to happen? I want there to be complete equality here. I want everyone living in the land to have equal rights. And I want a free immigration policy so that people can move here, of course, including refugees who were forced and not allowed to return. I would like, and in general, an open immigration policy to people who want to come here. So that's just my bias. But will that happen in my lifetime? I don't know. But um, it's up to me to continue doing this work. It's up to you to uh, support this work. And you can do with PayPal, Patreon, or whatnot. But definitely start by checking out davidsheen.com, getting updates from the ground. Fantastic, David. Thanks so very much for sharing this morning with us. Wishing you the very best. And remember, listeners, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.